Hello and welcome to the first Point of Everything podcast of 2016. My name is Owen O'Sullivan and it's a doozy of an interview to start the year. Kevin Barry is one of the premier writers in Ireland, having released two fantastic short story collections, There Are Little Kingdoms and Dark Lies the Island, and the acclaimed debut novel City of Bohan. He's recently released Beetlebone, which has already won the £10,000 Goldsmiths Prize for Innovative Fiction. It's a fictional account of John Lennon trying to get to the island of Derinish, which he genuinely did own, in Clue Bay, County Mayo in 1978. But as Barry says during our chat it's actually about the creative process the journey to creating something there's an essay in the book which you reference in the podcast spoiler alert it's a personal account of barry's own attempt to get to the island and it's kind of the high for me anyway it was the highlight of the book i loved beetlebone uh, i think kevin barry is an idiosyncratic genius so i was delighted to get a chance to talk to him for the podcast we met on a busy Saturday morning in the run-up to Christmas on McCurtain Street, so apologies beforehand for the hustle and bustle in the background. Barry was in Cork to attend the Little Green Cars gig that had taken place in St. Luke's Church the previous night. We were up at St. Luke's Church last night for Little Green Cars. What did you think of the place? Did it bring back memories of living in Cork back along? Oh yeah, it was amazing actually, the church, because I used to live out to Ballyhooley Road about 20 years ago with a house full of reprobates, many of whom were still around, around the town in Cork. But I remember passing that church every day, walking up the hill, and I couldn't believe the scale of it, actually, last night inside. It's a really yeah, big yeah. space, and it's amazing, like, and the sound is phenomenal in there. Yeah, it was great, the little green cars. It's cool to have new venues coming in all the time, you know? It's a weird one in Cork, actually, just because in the past couple of weeks, like, the Savoy has closed down again. The pavilion has apparently closed down again last night, apparently. It's, it's kind of weird that, you know, you call this mad old church, which is absolutely huge and amazing and everything, like, oh, it's a good new venue to have. Yeah, what's really mad, actually, is, that I, God, I literally hadn't walked up St. Luke's Cross since about 1996 or 1987. <laughs> and it's very different now, you know, it's kind of, you can smell this kind of bohemian gentrification kind of got on around the place a bit it's cool you know it's great but um, yeah it's very hard to keep track of the live situation in Cork every place is always yeah, yeah. collapsing and being reborn <laughs> Lazarus like yeah, from the ashes yeah. a few few weeks later but it's a hard time you know for music to be running events and stuff it's really unpredictable business I have a kind of a background myself and sort of dodgy nightclub promotion you know from the 90s so I know what it's like I know it's brilliant to see the church going last night at a full house like yeah. Um, so it's brilliant. You can't say, you know, you have work in dodgy nightclub promotions and, and not elaborate on it. Is this in relation to Sir Henry's or is it something oh, else? Yeah, it would have been that kind of era. I went to London for a summer, I think, in 1988 with a couple of mates from Limerick and we were kind of... I don't know what we were listening to at this stage. It was a weird time, like the Smiths were gone and broken up and all that. So we were kind of old before our time. We were listening to fucking Leonard Cohen and Neil Young and things like this. And you're kind of searching for something new without realising it. And then suddenly around Camden Town, seeing all these young fellas in day-glow clothes, eyes popping out of their heads, going to this thing in the Camden Palace called Feet First. We're going, what's this, you know? and going in and it was acid house and of course straight away the next day we had the orange jeans bought <laughs> we were all on acid and we were into nothing else only house music you know um, came back to Limerick then and of course there was no house music <laughs> scene in Limerick so eventually I think about 1990-91 myself and a mate Ethan Akana who's still a very well known house DJ and hip hop DJ um, we started to, to put on nights 
her own Limerick, often getting DJs from Cork, because Cork had Warhouse DJs, um, and down from Galway, in various nightclubs around Limerick, putting on things with dodgy, kind of ravey yeah. names, you know, but it was great, some brilliant nights. The weird thing with promoting, back in those days, though, promoting house clubs was it would start off, you're doing it for the love of the music and, <laughs> and the buzz, very quickly it becomes a kind of businessy thing as well yeah. you know if you make a few quid it can be the end of it because you take oh you know that completely <laughs> I don't think that's pur- changed yeah all the purity goes out of it very quickly about numbers and bodies in the door you know yeah um, and I think the great promoters are the ones who stay in touch with kind of the actual buzz of the thing and, uh, and things like that but it's great training I, I remember doing awful things like <laughs> running 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 out of printers without paying bills and dodging drug squads and coming into raves and all this kind of stuff you know what I mean but it was I'd have to do a novel at some stage about my, my rave promoting days it was funny that like Limerick in the early 90s was very different from what it is now it had no confidence in itself culturally you know as it had this weird thing of being trapped in between Galway and Cork which were both more they both had more evolved kind of scenes culturally like they had film festivals and arts festivals and stuff and Limerick had none of this you had Cork an hour on one side and Galway an hour on the other side and it was kind of squeezed a bit it's very, it feels very different there now it feels, I left in 92 I think moved to Cork in 92 it feels a very different place now I notice when I go back they're far more confident in itself culturally than they used to be not everybody automatically leaves when they get to about 22 or 23 which is the way in my day you know Yeah. I remember I couldn't believe it when I moved down to Cork and people liked the place people <laughs> liked where they were living I was going like yeah, I love it like yeah. everywhere here I was like oh, Cork is superb like you know <laughs> everything you need is near the Grand Parade and in Limerick it was always the was like fucking hole like we have to get out yeah, of this place yeah. you know? and that's kind of gone thank god like yeah I was pretty depressed right through 80s 90s when I was growing up there but I love going back now because it feels like there's much more kind of youthful energy than it had you know it was down the doldrums for a long time but it seems to be coming back a lot and that kind of cultural capital thing they had a few years ago really helped I think you know like I have lots of relations and cousins and nephews coming out of art college and stuff in Limerick and it's um, and they all stay now you know and stay yeah. there and do stuff because I mean the bad thing now for I'm rambling away mental here but oh, like, no. the, 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 bad, the bad thing I think for young artists and musicians and writers increasingly now is you have to figure out how you're going to keep your overhead slow and live in a place mm. where you have time to do your creative work you know because young artists or writers can't afford London anymore or New York anymore or Dublin even yeah, yeah. anymore you know and it's a very important thing for any writer or artist or musician is to keep your overhead slow and not have to work three or four jobs just to be paying your rent, yeah. you know? In, in weird with smaller cities, are, I, I, I'm convinced they're the future for creative people. A couple of years ago, I did a year in Montreal, which by North American standards is quite a small, a million people city, but, but like all the bands and everything stay in Montreal now. And they would have previously, if they started getting big, you would move to New York or Los Angeles, right? They stay put now because the rent is about a quarter of what it would be in those cities, you know? They have a scene set up, it's smaller in terms of numbers, but it's just like, you know, you don't have to work five jobs. And that kills yeah, the yeah. artist's soul when you have to do shit jobs just to pay your rent, you know. And it's all over the world, this thing where, like, the big traditional kind of creative capitals like San Francisco and New York and London and Paris, artists and writers and musicians are just priced out of them now and can't live with them. So it's looking good for Limerick and Cork and places like <laughs> for now this, anyway know? for now but you can even see it in, in Cork in, yeah, yeah. in Cork and in every city you know so it's um, 
my tactic of living in a county Sligo swamp is the <laughs> ideal tactic probably you know if you can deal with the rain and the boredom <laughs> you mentioned Cork being a little bit gentrified where on McCurtain Street at the moment which I think is you know that's what's happening right now here like Crowley's the music shop is a burger joint next door to that is another burger joint do you think Cork is kind of losing sight of it a little bit you know like what it's kind of made its name on yeah, I mean, just walking along with, with Olivia, with my wife, there half an hour ago, and she was saying, McCartney Street isn't to be this fancy at all, you know? I don't know how many barbecue facilities a city the size of Cork needs, but I've lived pretty much in, in every part of Cork at some stage. I lived just up around the corner on Wellington Road in the mid-late 90s, and it's a very different neck of the woods now than, than, than it seemed then, you know? Like, you can't complain too much about place is getting a bit more prosperous looking and a bit fancier on the edges but it's what comes in the undertow of that sometimes is troubling when people start getting priced out of places and obviously I think the big issue like for younger people now and people who are trying to make creative work is kind of rents and things like that where it's just getting so hard to kind of make the basic nut on your rent every month I'm all for nice sofa shops and things like that great you know what I mean (laughs) but I think compared to a lot of places though Cork has a lot of its original character intact. I, I was very disappointed to see that the Uptown Grill doesn't seem to be there anymore. That seems to have gone the road. Where, where was that? It was across the road. It was it was outside the cash converter, the cash generator. Oh, yeah. That seems to have got out. It was a great place for liver and chips you could get there. Liver and chips. Liver and chips. The Cork Arms will never go. That's great to see that the Cork Arms is still there. I presume they still have the pool table in the back. Which is weird. Even though Ireland is a very small little wet rock. Like when you live in County Sligo, Cork seems like a long way down the road, you know, so I don't get, it, get here that much, really. But it's, it's, it's weird. I mean, I don't know, a lot of my writing work is about a lot of the ideas for stories and stuff always start with the place, you know. The geography is the original inspiration for something. And I'm really interested in the way every, every place has its own feeling, and Cork is mad, madly distinct atmosphere as a city, I think, you know. I mean, it's... My, my, my thing always when I'm here is you kind of forget you start to forget that the rest of the world is out there you know and <laughs> it kind of closes in on you yeah, yeah. and it becomes its own little universe and you the rest of the world is just a rumour kind of thing you know but, uh, um, what did you move to Cork for in 1992 was it to go to college I was going out with a young one who's in Crawford Art College so that's always the reason <laughs> men move you know is because partners are somewhere else or something but yeah I was here then for most of the 90s really until 2001 I think we moved because another girl was moving to Edinburgh <laughs> who's, who's to miss us now so, um, but yeah it's so about 8 years probably in all a very important time for me in terms of my work because it was when I was kind of getting serious about the writing you know in 2001 uh, yeah, well in the 90s and stuff here well, I was in my early 20s kind of a thing and getting serious about it I was doing Journalism when I was in Cork, a freelance journalist. We're doing bits for the Examiner and stuff, but it was um, I was trying to write fiction in a kind of a serious way. So that's my big memory of the place. Really, was getting very obsessive about doing the work and trying to get more disciplined about it. I, I actually work for the Examiner, so I'm, I'm a sub editor there. So I was just wondering, like, were, were you a journalist there, or you were covering court as well for a while? Were you? I, that was in my first job in Limerick and the local papers in Limerick and the Limerick Post and stuff. I used to do the courts and council meetings. In Cork, I used to write features and I had a column on the back page of the Examiner yeah. for about 10 years. 
Was that just to kind of experiment with finding your voice? Your in a kind of unplanned way, I think it was like a kind of a little sketchbook for yeah. me, you know, because it was pure made up off the top of my head kind of stuff. Right. It was supposed to be funny. That was the only thing it had to kind okay. of be. But yeah, it, it was a great little notebook for me in lots of ways, you know. I'm sure it wasn't funny every week, but there would have been weeks it was funny enough. It's a weird thing, like, when you're working in that kind of journalism, writing features and columns and stuff, you're using an awful lot of the same muscles as you would use writing fiction. So you are training yourself in some ways that way. In, in terms of, like, writing to a word, can writing to a deadline? Yeah, and just in terms of kind of summoning atmosphere and putting dialogue down on the page and things like that, you know. I, I, I kind of realised, I'd say it was about 99, summer 99, I realised that I had to start to take it more seriously, writing fiction, you know. I kind of realised by that stage that I had ability and I could do it. But it took an awful lot of work. Stories and novels, God, I was a long way away from that, but it took, you know, to take an awful lot of drafts and time to get right and that there's no shortcut. And the old cliche is kind of true that, like, talent is about 5 or 10% of it, you know, and the rest is just slog and there's no way to shortcut that. I remember I bought it with a friend of mine who just met about half an hour ago. We, we chipped in and bought a caravan down in alleys in West Cork, and I went down and spent most of the summer in it trying to write a novel, you know. I was fucking terrible. Like, it was awful. And I knew even as I was writing it, it was shit. Like Just by yourself in the caravan? Mostly, yeah, yeah. But it taught me, actually, that, Jesus, inside three months, I had about 60,000 words. I thought, actually, you can, you can get something yeah. that's at least the size and shape of the novel together quite quickly but I realised what I needed to do was get a bit poor actually and give up a lot of the freelance work I was doing and give more time to the trying to write fiction yeah. I, learned to, I, lear- I learned to ride a bicycle when I was 14 I learned to swim when I was 29 and I just after learning to drive two years ago age 44 my first book of stories came out when I was 37 slim volume so there's a pattern here you know I'm kind of a, you know I don't rush into things <laughs> but I'm a flyer then once I get going and I love swimming now and I love I love driving the car <laughs> I'm glad actually in some ways that I didn't publish younger you know often writers can who publish in their 20s and maybe get early success and can burn out very quickly and not be able to deal with attention and stuff at, at that age you know so I was kind of I'd been kind of around the block and a bit by the time I started doing the book stuff. So I was kind of ready for it. And I, I wasn't ready to be published, I think, in my 20s. I was still kind of doing that thing where you're writing out your influences, you know, where you're trying to sound like your favourite writers. Yeah. And you're not quite getting your, your own thing on the page. Yeah, and it, it takes a long time and lots of... That formula someone came up with for creative work that you have to spend about 10,000 hours doing any kind of creative practice before you start to become adept yeah. at it something rings very true about that I think there's an awful lot of time where you're trying to just figure out any sort of approach to it and how you can do it you know my, my strong sense memory of Cork is of getting very one tracked in my mind and very obsessive about writing fiction and doing it in a serious way and kind of deciding really yeah I'm going to fucking dedicate my life to this really and I'm very serious about it and it's weird like when you decide you're going to do anything creatively it's this kind of pact you're making with yourself you know because creative work it all comes from the back of the brain it all comes from the subconscious from that same place you're using when you dream you know and and you're you're saying to your own subconscious it sounds weird and esoteric but you're saying to your own subconscious give me stuff give me give me material and your part of the deal is that you're going to be you're going to be available to it and you're going to do the work you know I think everyone 
maybe without articulating it in that same way, everybody has to do this, you know, if they're going to make a book or make a record or make a film or anything. There comes a moment when you kind of realise, oh, fuck, I have to get serious here, you know, and I really have to, to, put, to put the work in. Like, is, is that like every thing that you do it's I, not it's it, not right at the start yeah, like. I think it is the most fundamental time is at the start but it, it's weird every time you start a book you kind of have to reinvent the whole thing again in some ways you know the best description I've ever heard of writing a novel and I can never track out who said it but I think it might have been Iris Murdoch or someone said it's like each time you write a novel you're jumping off a cliff and you have to reinvent the rope as you go down <laughs> you know as you fall down one novel doesn't necessarily show you how to write the next one you know I know a lot of the time it can be frustrating work you know going into this room on your own in a swamp in County Sligo and, 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 and just like I wasn't disciplined enough in my 20s I'm very disciplined now I go in there six or seven days a week and I'll sit there for three or four hours you know but I'm, I'm not writing all that time but I'm there you know yeah. so if something comes I'm available and that seems to be my part of yeah. the deal with my subconscious you know that I show up and your subconscious says oh yeah he's, he's, he's there now he's at the desk might give him something today yeah. but like I'd say one or two days a week seems to be going well most days it feels kind of fairly fucking yeah, yeah. dreary and slow and a oh, disaster of a day fucking nothing again you know but it's I wouldn't swap it either you know I, I, I love doing it and it's it's a privilege to be able to spend my, my, my days going into this little shed and making up mad stories and, and nutty little worlds, you know. So we try to remember that. But it's weird, like, what you, what you discover after a while. And I, like, I don't teach, but, you know, go around talking sometimes to colleges and creative writing students and that. And you discover what, like, literary talent isn't rare. There's loads of it around. Lots of people are able to write really good stories and sentences and characters. Yeah. But what's very rare is the pragmatic, stubborn attitude to keep doing it when you don't feel like doing it every day, going back to it. And, and the two combined then are what make a writer or an artist, I think, is, is when you both have that ability and when you're prepared to kind of do the kind of the grunt work and the kind of heavy lifting, rock breaking work that it takes to make anything kind of worthwhile, I think, yeah, really. Yeah. I do always enjoy hearing about the creative process, but it does seem like everybody has a different idea of what it is. Like even in The Guardian yesterday, they were talking about, it's not about how much you write, it's about like just dedicate like half an hour every day to doing it. And you know, as long as you do that, you know, you'll get into the routine. No, I absolutely believe that. And I think as well what you do is the same half an hour, if you can, like the same time. Because you're literally training the subconscious part of your brain he or she is 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 there with a notebook or with a computer open now, you know. I think, and, and, and it can kind of start to come for you that way. And it's mad. Twenty minutes can be a good writing day, you know. If you do the same twenty minutes, I find the very best time actually is first thing in the morning when you're kind of still half asleep and you're kind of not afraid to embarrass yourself right. on the page and you just blurt stuff down. Yeah. That's when you can get the good stuff, you know. And it's really interesting when I look back at myself as a writer in my twenties in Cork and I'm reading back over stories I've written or half stories I've written. You know, you come to the bits that are really embarrassing on the page and you immediately cut them out and you try to make it sound impressive, right? And now when I look over stories and stuff, I'm really interested in the parts that embarrass me, where I recoil in horror from the page, because that's, often that's the good stuff. You know? Like now you recoil yeah. from horror, like why yeah. did I write that? Yeah, but when, when I see those bits that are really embarrassing now, you, you often find that's the good stuff. Cut everything else, that's the stuff where you're getting at really true things and, and, and really more heartfelt, genuine work, you know? Um, definitely as a younger writer, your tendency is to cut those messy bits straight away where it gets emotional or anything it sound you're trying to sound cool and impressive on the page or funny or something you know but I'm really 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 interested in embarrassment now 
about the bits that make and I think writers should pay very close attention to the bits that embarrass themselves and their own work there's a good reason for it often it's because it's true with this stuff you know right, yeah. I should really concentrate on it you have to build up your resources all the time though when, when you write anything a story or a song or anything whatever it is you're, 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 you're always kind of you're giving yourself away a bit you know and you have to kind of sell yourself out a bit every time and give, give something if, it, if it's going to resonate with people you know you have, to, you have to give something away every time and you have to build up your reserves and your defences over the years to do this and to get more a bit more fearless in doing it it's true I think every writer every artist every musician has a different approach I get very worried about technique becoming too smooth you know, definitely you can see it happening for me in my 30s. You know, I could see that I was developing pretty good technique in terms of writing prose. And it's a very dangerous moment because you can start to rely on your technique and you can start to confuse it for inspiration, you know, in a kind of weird way. The very facility, the ability to write good sentences can make it feel like it's inspired when... Um, I don't know, it's difficult to kind of articulate, but I'm trying to... I'm trying to keep it fresh for myself all the time and I'm very wary in my work of repeating myself and doing the same story again and again or doing the same book again and again. It's really interesting, I think, to try and maybe change your methods sometimes and look at your work in different ways, you know? Yeah. Um, I have a lot of friends who are visual artists and I notice they're far more into kind of investigating the way they work than writers are. Writers can fall into patterns, you know, this worked for the last book, so I'll, I'll go yeah. at it the same way again. And I notice visual artists are more more inclined to look at their methods and their practice and go, well, you know, let's change this. And I, I kind of try and borrow some of that attitude, I think. In your latest novel, Beetlebone, there's the kind of the essay three quarters of the way through where it changes from the perspective of John trying to, you know, get to the island and it changes to you kind of trying to find John maybe or something yeah. like that. But you do say you're very aware of yourself. I just have a quote here. I would return to report my findings in a mature, honed prose as clear as glass. This from a man who has never knowingly underfed an adjective. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, it's weird that that kind of essay that comes, yeah, about two-thirds away through the book, it came about kind of very accidentally, really, because I, I had notes for Beetlebone all over the place in different sort of, on the backs of envelopes and on the backs of beer mats and tapped into the phone. And one day I said, I'm going to... Um, buy a lovely fancy new moleskin notebook and gather all my notes into one place and I started transcribing them all down and I found very naturally these paragraphs were forming quite effortlessly and telling the story straight about John Lennon having had an island off the coast of County Mayo and, and about me trying to write a story about trying to get there and I thought God, this is this is coming down effortlessly and the, the book up until then had been anything but fucking effortless yeah. a real slog to try and get a voice right for it and, and then I found kind of very personal material from my own life coming into this essay bit and I thought fuck this is the emotional heart of the book really you know and it's a book about how do you make something how do you make a novel how do you make a record how do you make anything and that about having to go into your own dark material and using what you find there to, 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 to create something and I was very, very determined to keep that essay bang centre the book and not put it as a kind of an afterword or something like that because that would be placing it outside the novel where it felt to me very much like this is the heart of the novel and I kind of wanted to show the workings this is how I've made this book you know this is it. and one of the things I was thinking about actually were those features on, on your DVD box sets where you're watching Mad Men or The Wire or something and they give the, the episode with crew commentary you know yeah, how, yeah. How, how we made this I, I always really like that kind of See, seeing the workings and seeing, seeing, seeing the strings on the puppets, you know, so 
I think readers will go anywhere with you in a novel if they're having a good enough time page by page you know and I, I definitely felt as I was writing that essay it was coming down so effortlessly onto the page I don't pay attention here this is this is the, the, the heart of it you know this is the the serious part of the book generally it was very very difficult novel it took me way longer than I thought it was going to take Was that kind of disappointing for you because you thought that you had kind of reached you know a level? Oh tell me about it I was, <laughs> I was convinced six months it was going to take yeah. me six months I'd be in and out I'd do this glorious, bursted, mad, trippy, psychedelic prose and I'd be finished. And it was about four years, you know, coming and going from it. But it was on the desk for four years, you know. And it was just because it had a unique problem in terms of it was a very iconic figure. And so every reader is going to come into a book like that with an idea of what he should sound like. You know, you have a, you have, you've got to go into that novel with a preconception of oh, he should sound, you know. So to get it right on the page took all sorts of fucking... To get anything I was happy with took a long time, you know. A lot of it was just kind of watching YouTube and watching interviews with him from 70s talk shows mm. when he was mainly kind of whinging about his visa difficulties in the US and just literally transcribing him line by line and just trying to get kind of the beat of the sentences, you know. He's especially tricky because he's very changeable in his tone all the time. He can be very funny and very charming and kind of light. And then inside a sentence, he's kind of paranoid and a bit thorny and a bit kind of... Narky, you know, and yeah. then to try and replicate that on the page turned out to be very hard. I mean, I, I began the book in this kind of gleeful kind of atmosphere. I was thinking, this is a fucking great idea. How come no one thought of doing this before? And literally about three weeks in, I was going, oh, fuck, this is really, this is really hard, you know. Yeah. It was when I gave him a sidekick, actually, in the book, when I gave him this driver, Cornelius, who becomes his kind of his, his kind of minder and his kind of spiritual guide around the west of Ireland he's almost the star of the book oh, completely and takes over and yeah. the kind of joke of the book is that Cornelius is the legend in this world you know but it's when I gave him a sidekick and he had someone to play off that it, it, it kind of sat up on the desk for me and started to come to life you know so that was critical and I, I discovered him it was very um, old fashioned kind of book in a lot of ways it's like Don Quixote or something it's a quest novel you know where we're kind of getting, yeah. to, getting to the island and what that means in someone's life or, or you know when you're searching for me- the meaning of life essentially and, and, and what happens with John is that he keeps getting just dragged into his past and I think this is a human truth you know when we try to find ourselves and try to discover ourselves and try to change and all this in life what inevitably happens is you start getting drawn back into your own past and into your own family history and all that and you, you can never step out of the shadow of that you know and that's the kind of the pattern of the book and that's what makes it actually it's the only thing that makes it similar to the last novel Leo Bohan which is also about characters who are kind of obsessed with their pasts and the kind of imagined glamour of their youths in this yeah. kind of vaguely limerick-like or cork-like city full of murder, murderous homicidal teenage hipsters I, I kind of really enjoyed about the last year on Beetlebone where I was kind of happy enough with the voices and once you have those and once you have the kind of tune of it if you like the book you can kind of invent at will then you can make the world fall into place fairly effortlessly but it, it took kind of three years of rock breaking to kind of get there you yeah, know yeah. Uh, definitely the most important thing that happened was was this driver character who kind of stepped forward as a kind of a, a character of equal weight yeah, in the book yeah. and that, that helped me to put the Lennon character into kind of a kind of relief I suppose really you know and like, you never have a fucking clue how you've managed a story or a book after you finished it, you know, like, you know if it's kind of working or if it kind of isn't, and it's 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 you know it's very hard to just to look back through a, a, a long process like that 
and rakes of draps and different, you know, mounds of the stuff at home, like hundreds of thousands of words of it for what's in the end a very short novel, 50,000 words kind of thing. I was definitely kind of getting on top of it only after about a couple of years really of a lot of kind of hair pulling and kind of going, oh Jesus, this is, this is, this is tough, you know. So it took a while, but it was really nice to get it out of the house. <laughs> it was really nice to get it off the desk and go, wow, I've actually cleared up an awful lot of space in my life and brain. <laughs> now that this thing is out the door, you know, so it's uh, um, yeah, I was living and breathing it for a long time. Have you gone back and listened to the Beatles or John yeah, Leno solo yeah. stuff? Yeah. The weird thing is, like, I was never a Beatles fanatic by any means. I loved the White Album. The White Album was one of my favourite records, okay. And I like some of his early solo stuff very much. Like, my, weirdly, my, my Beatles kind of period would have been in Cork, very early 90s, when it was still kind of acid housey, rolling acid. And about seven in the morning at parties, the house music would stop and someone would sneak on Sgt. Pepper or the White Album. And it would all make perfect sense at that time. So that was my kind of getting into it. I mean, the White Album was the record I got back to again and again. And I listened to it quite a lot while I was working on the, on the book. I think his personality really comes through in some songs on it, like I'm so tired and things like that. But it's a weird one about listening to music when you write, you know. It's, it's, I do and I don't. Very often what I can listen to is stuff that has no lyrics because lyrics, words will distract you. Yeah. So I listen to, like, Bohan, City of Bohan is my, is my dub reggae <laughs> album. You know, I, I listen to nothing when I'm writing, and I'm going to be doing another Bohan book, and I just listen to dub reggae records, essentially, when I'm writing wow. it. Trojan Records and, and Lee Scratch Perry and King Tubby and all this kind of stuff. And there's loads of fucking buried reggae iconography all around City of Bohan. I often then listen to kind of electronica stuff. That, again, no, like... House on Mars and Matmos and things like that, Boards of Canada, just just for kind of atmosphere in the room without the distraction of, of, yeah. of lyrics coming at you, you know? If I'm writing very concentrated first rap stuff, I, I generally turn it off and have nothing. I could just be quiet, you know? But it's, it's nice when you're editing and going back to have a bit of kind of feeling or atmosphere somehow in, in the room. There's a Boards of Canada record, I can't remember which one, which got me through a lot of Beatles about just putting it on, just... And it's funny, if you keep playing the same stuff over again, it kind of, you know, it kind of gives you the atmosphere of the book in, in some ways. The reggae records will be coming out again now very soon <laughs> when, when, when I do the second Bohan book, you know. Is, is it actually records that you have or is it just like yeah. Uh, Spotify? Yeah, yeah, I have records. I have iPod. I don't have Spotify. I'm not very techno-astute <laughs> at all. I've started buying records a lot again. I always did, but I got a kind of a decent record player about two years ago. I had a dodgy one, and I got a good one. And it's kind of made me go, oh, yeah, I just love them, you know. And it's, they're an awful price, man, is the, is the shocking yeah. thing, you know. I do, I do the, the charity shop hunting and, and all the rest of it. Usually, though, I'm playing an iPod on a thing because it's getting up and down to change the sides gets a bit annoying yeah. when, you're, when you're trying to get work done. But it's very important to, to my work, actually, music, because I think that every story or every novel, in a, in a way, has its own tune our melody and as a writer what you're doing is trying to get it and trying to tune into it yourself you know and trying to hear it so once you get that then the rest of it can come, come around but yeah uh, it'll, be ba- it'll be back to, to King Toby and Lee Scratch Perry very shortly have you uh, splashed out on any like rare albums at all no, no yeah and you'd lo- you see stuff you know and you look at websites and go wow but um, no I, I try and keep it reasonable <laughs> you know? there's nothing like the, 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 the feeling of it though you know about, about new vinyl and the smell of it and then moving the arm across on, on, on the record player it's, 
That's right. And then the amazing thing to me is like my records from early 80s are perfect you know they're playing absolutely fine and CDs I bought five years ago are fucked you know yeah. <laughs> it's such good technology yeah. vinyl you know it stores so well they last for a fucking long time and you can throw them around the place and move as I did about 50 different flats and they're still playing away grand you know not, not see it's moving the records which is the problem moving them is a pain to hold I remember one flat I had in Washington Street and it was 92 steps up to it it was over Bazaar's barber shop and 92 steps going up and down with boxes of records boxes of books oh man I tell you we'll talk about winter pages I won't keep you too much longer I haven't actually gotten it because I think that I've dropped enough hints that I'll get it from at least one person over Christmas I mean is that what the goal was complete the idea is is that it's a kind of a Christmas present essentially yeah because it's a really like we wanted to make a really beautiful object of a book so so it's like it's an arts anthology so it's got essays and short stories and interviews with like filmmakers Lenny Abrahamson is in there and, and comedians the rubber bandits and all that as well as like loads of fiction but we wanted two things to have a really beautiful object really nice book so it's got a cloth cover it hard back and it's got really beautiful paper and all that but often you find these really beautiful coffee table books there's fuck all to read once you open them so we wanted to give it really good content as well um, there's loads of Cork stuff actually in it there's loads of Cork Sarah Baum and Danielle McLaughlin and it's designed in Cork by Byte Byte Design John Foley who I know since way back in, in, in the 90s um, brilliant designer and it's printed out in Waterman's in Cork so it's it's great. It's a great excuse for us to get down here you know but it's um, yeah people seem to be really enjoying it and it's a lot of work but very enjoyable kind of it's kind of sociable work because you're dealing with people on email and phone and chatting you know and because writing fiction is kind of you in a room you know and the four walls and, and coming from a background in, in journalism which is a sociable trait if, if you could say not else for it yeah. you get out and about a bit with it you know it's nice to have that but um, uh, yeah we're, we're very happy with the first one and it's definitely you know, a Christmas present for arty adults like your Beano or your Dandy <laughs> for arty adults you know I, I was completely thinking of that week in between kind of um, Christmas and the new year where you're lying around and you're kind of half pissed half the time and you've eaten too much and telly is shit and you go yeah what'll I read I think there that, 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 that's what it's for winter pages you know so yeah, it's winterpages.ie if anyone wants to have a look at it online um, do you keep up with all of the new Irish writers that are coming through yeah I, I, I get sent all the books and you tend to get proof copies of them in early and stuff and it's uh, horrifying you know and you see all these young fucking geniuses appearing left right and centre it's been a crazy year actually for debuts brilliant brilliant books like Cork Alone great book from Madeleine Darcy great book of stories and Danielle McLaughlin and Sarah Baum just dozens of them coming it seems to be very buzzy at the moment lots lots of lots of stuff appearing so that was great for the winter pages thing as well just because there's a sense of kind of energy out there you know Um, stuff going on and lots of first books lots of second books appearing kind of soul destroying as well for a a writer in mature middle age you see all these young geniuses showed up but um, no 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 it's a cool time you know, it's, it's, what's great is loads of journals have, have set up like the Penny Dreadful in Cork and, and Gorse in Dublin and the Sting and Fly and, and Dublin Review and things that are there a while the winter pages the plan was to have a very broad base so it would do all the art so you have like you know Tommy Tiernan in it and the Danish guy who wrote Borkin is in it and then lots of stuff across the board and, and photography and visual arts and that so very happy with the, with the first one anyway and we hope now to do it as an annual you know to keep it keep it coming and that you know start of November every year it'll, it'll appear and, and it'll come out 
great thing actually is it's, that it's a genuine cottage industry that we can do from the house in Sligo, you know, which is you know, having come from you know an analog era, <laughs> it, it, it's it's still a kind of an amazement to be how 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 liberating. You know, technology is for artists and writers and publishers and all that. You know, you can do it from anywhere. You know, and you can you can do your work from anywhere in the world as long as you have a, a connection. We shouldn't forget that this is a really great revolutionary thing, and that you know it really opens up the planet to us. And it's great. We go off all over the place. So I could be anywhere in the world, and I choose to be in a fucking swamp in Sligo, which is bizarre. You know? Finally, I guess, since we're in the middle of December, it's time for end of year lists and everything. Would you have like some favourite Beetlebone by you is on many writers' favourite lists. What would be on yours? Oh wow! Do you know, weirdly, actually, one of the one of the best things I read all 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 year. They've been publishing in in, in different volumes the collected letters of Samuel Beckett. Oh, he's brilliant. Uh, the, the latest ones now are really interesting because they're from the kind of 50s when he's getting famous. So Waiting for Cotto has been an international hit in that. And uh, they're really heartening to turn to him. It's a big book with 700 pages. I think it's volume three of the Beckett Letters. Because no matter how bad or depressed you're feeling yourself, you can guarantee Sam is feeling fucking worse. You know? <laughs> and the more successful he gets, the worse he's feeling. But he comes across as like incredible breadth of learning. You know, He knows every piece of music, every film big into film he knows every every painting that's ever been painted but he comes across as a very kind person as well you know very decent uh, a really good friend and stuff to people so it's um, yeah that's the, that's the book I keep going back to more often than not there's another great one that people mightn't have heard of very much Douglas Coupland who's known from his Generation X books and all that but he's got a book called Kitten Clone and it's about the internet and it's about how it's kind of rewiring our brains and changing us as readers and as writers and everything really interesting really funny book actually but really important I think Kitten Clone by Douglas Cooper right. I'll keep it in mind I'll add it to my reading list yeah so thanks a lot for doing this and best of luck with everything that's coming down the line what are you working on at the moment I have are two uh, not at all man I'm, still, I'm back in there no I have two kind of short little plays actually on the desk at the moment that I'm trying to get something done with over the next over the next while and then in the sometime in the new year I'll be um, heading back out to the city of Bohan I think again see how we get on out there with your dub reggae with the, the dub reggae will be out by I fucking tell you now yeah thanks a million to Kevin there for chatting to me for the podcast I thoroughly enjoyed it uh, I had a million more questions swirling around my head that I could have asked him but alas I'll have to wait till next time Hopefully there'll be a next time. And for those wondering, I didn't get Winter Pages for Christmas, but I did pick it up with a book voucher afterwards, and it is sumptuous. It's a delight to hold and a joy to read, all of which I think Kevin Barry did express during our chat. I can't recommend it highly enough. If you love books, you'll absolutely adore this. It'll take pride of place on your coffee table, in your bookcase, on the floor. It'll light up any room. Meanwhile, thanks to Joe Kelly of St. Luke's for helping out with the interview, and thanks to Steve McAvoy of TuranAudio.com, T-O-R-A-N-N-A-U-D-I-O.com, for mastering the audio. Make sure to subscribe to The Point of Everything on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Mixcloud so you don't miss an episode. They're out weekly, by the way, just in case you were wondering. And you can get in touch by emailing thepointofeverything at gmail.com. 
on Twitter at TPOE blog and on Facebook by searching for The Point of Everything. So yeah, thanks a million for listening. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Kevin Barry and we'll talk to you next week with a brand new episode.